Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Every now and then on Radio Curious, we talk with someone from the past, someone who died long ago, someone who has had a major influence on the way we think and live. We have that opportunity once again in today's program. Socrates of Athens, who lived from 469 to 339 before the Common Era, is respected as one of the greatest independent thinkers of all times. Socrates himself refused to be recognized as a teacher. Instead, Plato, his well-known student and reporter of Socrates' dialogues, tells us that Socrates asked to be seen as a midwife of ideas. Socrates' passion to achieve self-understanding and the proper ways to live continues to be studied and emulated to this day. In this program, we talk with Socrates of Athens in the person of Ronald Gross of New York. As Cicero said about Socrates, he called philosophy down from the skies and into the lives of men. Socrates of Athens, welcome to Radio Curious. It's a pleasure to be with you, Barry. Self-understanding. How does a person go about to understand himself or herself? Well, that, was, uh, that is my passion, uh, and that is, was my call to my fellow Athenians. Uh, that's what I call them to, uh, self-understanding. Know thyself was inscribed uh, on the uh, uh, Delphic Oracle, and I accepted it as the dictum of my life, and I have lived that way for my entire life, and I have enjoined others to join me in that quest for self-understanding. How do you do that? How do you, uh, how do you understand who you are and well, what your position is in, in society? Well, the first thing that I had to do, as you probably know, was to challenge what I had been told about myself by the greatest uh, uh, authority of our time, uh, the Delphic Oracle itself. Well, uh, for those of us who may not uh, recall what you were told, what did the Oracle of Delphi uh, say? Well, it was about uh, a decade ago when my friend Carafon, who had taken to following me around the, the Agora, uh, became so impressed with me that he wanted to check out whether I was truly uh, the guide that he should accept for his life. And so he went to the Oracle of Delphi and asked the Oracle about my wisdom. And the Oracle told him that uh, there is no person wiser than Socrates. So Carafon uh, came back to Athens and began telling all my friends about this. But I, of course, uh, reminded them that I always maintain that I'm an ignorant person myself, merely seeking wisdom in concert with others. So I actually had to question what the Oracle of Delphi had said, or rather the way that Carafon interpreted it. How old were you when uh, your reputation began to precede you, as you describe it? About 31 years old. It was uh, shortly after that incident, as a matter of fact, because what that propelled me to was an experiment in trying to disprove the Oracle. Uh, and my experiment was to simply find someone in Athens who I could show was indubitably wiser than I. So I went to the people who were reputed to have great wisdom, and I began to question them about the bases of their opinions and their convictions, about which they seemed so sure. 
But what I discovered was that the more I questioned them, the more unsure they became and the more it became apparent to those who watched my dialogues with them that despite having a reputation for wisdom, many of these people uh, really uh, literally didn't know what they were talking about. And what under- kinds of uh, questions did you pose? Oh, I posed questions about the logic of their position, about the rigor of their reasoning, uh, about the evidence uh, for the opinions that they expressed, and it quickly became apparent that in many cases they were merely repeating things that they had been told by the elders, by their parents, uh, by their schooling, uh, by the religious leaders, rather than having thought through their convictions for themselves. What would be some examples? Well, uh, you uh, may recall the young man Euthyphro, who I encountered uh, uh, on the way to the courthouse to uh, sue his father uh, for impiety. Uh, And when I began to question him, it turned out that his notion of morality was to do as the gods decreed, as the gods enjoined. Uh, But I pointed out to him that the different gods, Zeus, uh, Dionysus, seem to uh, enjoin us to very different things and, in fact, contradict themselves in what they say on different occasions and in their actual behavior. Uh, Zeus, as you you well know, uh, tended to uh, take on disguises in order to uh, rape women. And I did not believe that uh, that was a kind of divinity that we could really take our guidance from. So by questioning uh, where he got that opinion from, I gradually got that young man to realize that we needed to find gods who told us what to do because it was the right thing rather than accept that it was the right thing because we thought it was what the gods told us to do. Why did you land on the concept that the gods must tell you what the right thing to do is? Because I had an innate sense in myself, what I called my daemon, which was my guide and is my guide to my own behavior and my own decisions, and I relied on that rather than uh, what, uh, what, what, what had come down to us traditionally through the religious channels. And I believe that each person had to seek that in themselves, and that's what I enjoined my fellow citizens and friends and neighbors to do. Yet in your society in uh, Athens, uh, there were many uh, suggested, if not proscribed, doctrines as ways to live and ways for people to govern themselves. Exactly. And what, m- what made me different from the other philosophers abroad at, at that time, and what still makes me different today, is that I did not tell people what to think or even tell them what I thought. I tried to get them to think for themselves and to give forth the very best that they could possibly come up with for uh, the principles that should guide their life. I used to compare it to my mother, who was a midwife, and I recall vividly how, as a young person, I would accompany her when she would go on her work of helping women to bring babies into the world. And uh, a few years ago, I realized myself that my mission in life was to be a midwife, but that I was a midwife of the mind, that my mission is to encourage people to bring forth the best ideas that they have. And I frequently feel as I question my fellow Athenians and ask them uh, questions about their opinions that what I'm doing is comparable to what my mother did when she would tell a woman to push, push, push. I'm asking them to push harder to bring forth a really healthy, vibrant uh, new idea. What kind of direction uh, in thinking and molding your conscience did you receive from your father? Well, my father was a stonemason, 
And in fact, I apprenticed with him as a young man. Uh, we worked on parts of the Parthenon on the uh, frieze. Uh, but uh, I soon discovered that that was not my true vocation. But what stayed with me was the image of creating, uh, carving uh, something out of raw material. And I came to feel that my mission in life was to create a life for myself, to create myself, as it were, to carve myself rather than to carve a piece of marble. Uh, and uh, so I, I regarded myself as a sculptor in the in the craft of living. And my call was for for more artistry in the craft of living as we each try to shape our own lives. Let's talk about um, community uh, control of government. Uh, what is your uh, sense on how the body politic should be controlled? Oh, Barry, that's such a good uh, uh, question. Uh, and as you know, participation in politics uh, by Athenians uh, is uh, uh, a real responsibility, and in fact, uh, almost uh, the the prime activity of a citizen is participation in the body politic. Just the other day, uh, uh, the there weren't enough citizens uh, turned out for the assembly, uh, the daily assembly, to review the pending legislation. So we sent out a group of men with a great rope dipped in red paint. And they went out into the Agora, the great marketplace at the foot of the Acropolis, and they just surrounded a group of Athenian citizens and dragged uh, them to the assembly, uh, with the result that uh, that those those gentlemen uh, were dismayed at having to uh, reveal the red stains on their chitons, showing that they had had to be dragged to their public duty. But that's how strongly we feel about participation in the affairs of state, so that every Athenian must participate. Uh, in fact, our laws are, are constructed in such a way that, uh, uh, in terms of uh, limits on the terms of offices, that most offices are only held for a few months uh, or a year at most. And what we hope is that every citizen will have the experience of serving as a government official at least once in his lifetime, so that he will realize the responsibilities that that carries and therefore be a better citizen when he's... Uh, uh, being ruled by others. Is every person alive uh, within Athens uh, deemed to be a citizen, or are there certain uh, limitations on class, gender, or other uh, restrictions? Oh, great limitations, I'm afraid, and uh, it uh, saddens me greatly because I think that we uh, miss contributions from many people who could make great uh, contributions to our body politic. But uh, as you know, women are excluded from political participation as well as uh, from participation in much of the rest of our social and political and civic life. Uh, so uh, women are excluded. Uh, really, only native-born Athenian males are, uh, are regarded as citizens, and we have a large number of people in the city who are slaves or barbarians uh, or women uh, who do not participate fully. And I think that that is a weakness in our state that uh, we may come to regret one day. Have you chosen to challenge that over the years? Oh, yes. How uh, do you do that? Well, on a personal level, I have found some of my uh, greatest friends and comrades among uh, women 
uh, of Athens. Uh, Aspasia, the uh, consort of Pericles, our leader, uh, is a dear friend who has taught me more than anyone else about the arts of thinking and rhetoric. Uh, my mother, of course, uh, Thanaret, who I just talked about before and who inspired my mission of being a midwife of the mind, uh, and Diotima, uh, who taught me the most uh, about the only subject I ever claimed to be an expert on, love, so that when it was my turn to try to define love in the symposium, uh, I had to turn to Diotima and quote her in order to make my presentation on that subject. Socrates of Athens, if you would excuse me for a moment, I'd like to describe something that may be beyond your ken. This is Radio Curious, and I'm talking with uh, Socrates of Athens, who lived in the Greek city of Athens approximately 2,500 years ago. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Socrates, um, you talk about due respect for private property, and my questions are twofold. One is, what is private property, and when is the property public? And two, what is due respect? (laughs) Well, those are questions which would probably take us more time to explore fully than we have available in this particular dialogue. Uh, But I would define uh, uh, private property, just to start off our discussion, uh, as property that uh, was the creation or is created or sustained by the individual uh, and therefore over which uh, he has a legitimate uh, uh, sense of proprietorship. Uh, Starting Uh, with a person's clothing, for example. Yes, exactly. But how far out do we extend uh, to their tools, to their home, to the ground on which they live? (laughs) I think uh, that I would extend it uh, to that which is an extension of uh, their uh, need and requirements for uh, living a full life, uh, insofar as that does not conflict with anyone else's. Uh, and so we would need to look at specific situations to decide where to draw that line in a, in a uh, specific situation. One of my uh, constant uh, uh, imperatives is to not imply, apply a, an abstract rule, but to look at specific situations and to question any, any rule that we come up with by bringing up uh, exceptions that might challenge it. So I would want to look at the specific situation of any situation regarding property and how, what it is its, its extent. What was your phrase to lead a, uh, a full and happy life? Yes. <laughs> Who determines that? I think that is determined by the individual uh, living in compliance with the uh, due respect for the uh, state which provides the basis for his or her being. Uh, I was uh, and am uh, the proudest Athenian, uh, but I feel that that entails being critical of Athens when necessary. I felt that the city was a, uh, a great, like a great steed that had grown lazy and sleepy, and it needs uh, the bites of the gadfly, as, as people tend to call me. Uh, you know, they compare me to the bites of the gadfly that uh, uh, bites the butts of farm animals in the attic summer and can drive an animal crazy if the animal can't swat them away. And people have taken to referring to my unremitting questioning as like the bites of the gadfly. Uh, but I continue to do it because I believe that the state is uh, a a great steed that that tends to grow lazy and sleepy unless it is constantly provoked, and that's really my role here: 
is to be the constant provocation uh, for people to have to think through why they're doing what they're doing. Socrates, permit me to ask you this. Do you own slaves? No, I do not. Do you Uh, know people who do? Yes, I do. And do those slaves uh, have occasion to wait on you? Yes, that has occurred. How do you uh, reconcile that? Well, um, I have great difficulty with it, and the way I expressed that uh, in, was in the dialogue The Mino by my young friend Plato, in which I took a, slave, a young slave boy who was said to have only half a brain, and I demonstrated how that young man could solve one of Euclid's most difficult theorems, uh, because he had the innate capacity that was equal to that of any person Uh, any Athenian citizen. And by doing that, I wanted to demonstrate my conviction that we all have the potential to be fully human and should be treated accordingly. Socrates, I have a final, somewhat morbid question for you, if there is such a thing, and that is about your death. Uh, What led up to you choosing the method by which you were to die, and what were your uh, emotions and your feelings in the weeks and days prior to when you drank the hemlock juice? Well, I don't mind answering that question at all, Barry. Uh, The hemlock was the uh, established way that Athenians administered the death penalty, uh, and my emotions leading up to it were that I knew that it was the right thing for me to do. And you can actually read the uh, my words in Plato's wonderful dialogue called the Crito, uh, where my oldest friend visits my jail cell the night before I took the hemlock and begs me to accept my friend's plans for my escape. And I refuse and elect to take the hemlock, which I did because I wanted to demonstrate to the Athenians the injustice of what they were doing. And in doing that, I tried to launch uh, a a tradition of civil disobedience, of accepting an unjust law and accepting the penalty uh, in order to demonstrate its its unreasonableness and its injustice. So I actually took the hemlock in very good spirits. You can also read it in Plato's uh, dialogues about the actual scene in the the cell when I took the uh, the hemlock. Uh, I went to my death uh, knowing that it was the right thing for me to do and that I had lived the life that I was destined to live. What was the issue for which the death penalty was uh, issued to you? In my case, I was accused of atheism and of corrupting the minds of the youth. The atheism derived from my having told people that I felt that my inner voice was a more important guide to ethical conduct than uh, the supposed injunctions of Olympians like Zeus and Dionysus. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, corrupting the minds of the youth had to do with some young men who had hung around me and that, that had then gone bad. And so I was blamed for some of their excesses. But basically, my fellow Athenians just wanted to get rid of the gadfly. They grew intolerant of dissent and critical thinking and wanted to put a stop to my constant questioning. Socrates of Athens, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Uh, the most, the one I'm currently reading is by my friend Euripides, the playwright, and it's the text of his play, The Trojan Women, his wonderful play that shows what the Trojan War, uh, which we tend to uh, make heroic, looked like from the point of view of the women and children who were the victims of the violence. Uh, I think this is one of the most important 
plays ever put on our great theater uh, here in Athens, and I'm hoping that it will change the attitudes of my fellow Athenians to the whole uh, question of what Athens' role should be in the world and whether we should be embarked on adventures uh, in warring against other countries. Your suggestion is yes or no to being embarked on those adventures of warring in other countries. We need to learn from Euripides' imagination what the terrible cost is of war and therefore be extremely careful about choosing when war is absolutely necessary and always aware of how much damage it's going to cause to innocent people. I think that's the great lesson of this play and one that we Athenians very much need to learn. Well, Socrates of Athens, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. And Ronald Gross of New York City, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. A pleasure to be here. How is it that you uh, portray Socrates of Athens? Well, there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, he has been my beloved friend and mentor who has helped me to learn how to use my mind to the utmost, and I want to share, uh, both in portraying him and through uh, the book and website, how other people can benefit from his marvelous method for liberating our potential. How did you uh, first become attuned to Socrates? It started for me when I was nine years old, and I noticed that each day before he left for work, my father took a big volume down from the top shelf of our bookshelf and actually tore out three or four pages and carefully folded them in thirds and put them in his breast pocket, uh, then left for work. And when he would come back at night, he would carefully take out the pages, flatten them out, carefully put them back in the book. And when I finally had a chance to ask him what this was all about, he showed me that the book was the dialogues of Plato, uh, Plato's dialogues of Socrates. And he explained to me that he did not have the opportunity in his life to spend time with the wittiest, the most profound, the most interesting people uh, of our time, but that he could spend the hour that it took him to get to work every day on the subway and back home uh, spending that time with such people from 5th century Athens. And that's what he did by reading uh, Plato's dialogues on the subway. And that, uh, was, was, that impressed me. And then a a couple of years later, he took me to my first Broadway play, which was a play called Barefoot in Athens. And I saw my hero Socrates actually tramping around the Agora, the great marketplace at the foot of the Acropolis. And I refused to wear shoes for a week. And by that time, I was sold. And Socrates has been my friend and mentor ever since in developing my mind and making the most use of my potential. Does your father uh, know what you have done with uh, what he shared with you as a young lad? Yes. Uh, he's, he's passed away now, but he did, and he felt that it was one of the greatest gifts he was able to give me. So he had a chance to meet Socrates. Yes, he did. When you do your background research uh, to develop this character and to portray Socrates in the first person, as you have just done for us uh, here on Radio Curious, where do you look? What's your raw material beyond the dialogues of Socrates? Well, as you well know, Socrates wrote nothing himself because he truly believed that philosophy occurs only when you look in another person's eyes, hear their voice, and speak to them person to person. So he abjured uh, codifying his thoughts in writing, uh, and everything we know about him is what was written by his friends, chiefly Plato and Xenophon, 
uh, after, during the latter part of his life and after his death. And in that sense, the fact that we know anything about Socrates at all is a testament to his immense gift for friendship, because it was only because he cultivated such wonderful friends uh, who so revered and enjoyed their time with him that we have any record of the fact that he lived, let alone what he did. Uh, and in fact, those those dialogues of Plato, particularly, don't even bear titles like the usual philosophical works. They're not called things like Treatise on Logic or Prolegomenon to Any Future Metaphysics, but the titles of them are simply the the friend of Socrates who spent the most time talking on that occasion, so that their titles are Protagoras and Gorgias and uh, uh, Timaeus, simply the names of his friends. So basically, that is the source for our acquaintance with Socrates and our getting to know him. And in the book, Socrates Way, and on the website, SocratesWay.com, what I try to do is take uh, readers or viewers uh, and place them right next to Socrates in 5th century Athens so that we walk the streets with him, we go to parties with him, we go to the theater with him, uh, we see him in all of the uh, places and times that he spent and, and see his effect on, on people. Then I show how people in our time have used exactly the same technique to achieve great results. And then, of course, there are plentiful exercises by which the reader can acquire these skills themselves. And those are described uh, somewhat in your book, uh, Socrates' Way. Yes, Socrates' Way, Seven Master Keys to Using Your Mind for the Utmost. Uh, but readers can uh, get a nice sampling free, uh, just as Socrates uh, didn't accept payment for his teaching, but gave, gave it away free. We try to give away a good deal of the book on the website, SocratesWay.com, where you can see Socrates uh, walking around New York City today and uh, see how New Yorkers respond to him uh, and learn many of the exercises from the book. Well, Ron Gross, I want to thank you, too, for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, the same question. Can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? <laughs> yes, well, the one I'm reading right now is uh, Aristophanes' play about Socrates, The Clouds, in which he portrays Socrates as a philosopher with his head in the clouds and his, and his feet not on the ground and uh, tries to make a complete fool of him. And I love reading it because... Uh, when Socrates was in the audience for its premiere, uh, no one laughed louder at the play than Socrates himself. Uh, and in the intermission, Socrates stood up so that everyone could see who the target was. And to me, it's a wonderful symbol of the robust, critical uh, atmosphere that the Athenians established and that on which they thrived. Ron Gross, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry, for a wonderful interview. Ronald Gross is the author of Socrates' Way, and appears in person as Socrates of Athens. As Socrates, the book he recommends is The Trojan Women by his friend Euripides. The book Ron Gross recommends is a play about Socrates, The Clouds by Aristophanes. Editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere to listen, 
download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastat is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.